the next talk is Eric Dar. Uh, Eric, uh, again, is a, I, I hope known to everyone has been a leader in this field for, for many years. He's at UCLA at, uh, at Harbor uh, General Hospital and uh, really runs the, the, the program there. And uh, as Joe said, will kind of take us a little bit deeper dive into some of the newer drugs that are coming down the line. And we'll probably talk about some things that he heard at Croy. Good. Uh, thank you. And mostly what I'm going to do is worry about the questions that are going to be asked at the end. But <laughs> these are great questions. Uh, so, yeah, so what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about investigational approaches to antiretroviral therapy um, and particularly focus on sort of what's on the immediate and future horizon. Uh, these are my financial disclosures and these are the learning objectives. And you'll can see that it's mostly going to be sort of building on where we are already. And that's this. This slide summarizes the current recommendations for first-line therapy um, for patients starting treatment for HIV based on DHHS and ISUSA guidelines, both of which have been relatively recently updated. And as you know, both of which are um, very similar. And this has increasingly been the case across the US and Europe, and now even the WHO increasingly rec recognizing the value of first-line integrase inhibitor therapy. And all of the preferred options are integrase inhibitor-based and is consistent with guidelines since the initial availability of potent therapy, it's always two nukes and a third drug. It's just the third drug is now integrase, and it's been Bictegravir and Dolutegravir now are the preferred options, and Raltegravir remains an option uh, as a preferred choice for the DHHS guidelines, probably reflecting the fact that we have so much history with it, and it is so well tolerated, and there are virtually no important drug-drug interactions. Um, and some of the issues surrounding pregnancy, I think, are also driving why this has remained an option and trying to figure out what to give women of childbearing potential until the issues that Joe started to talk about with dolutegravir starts to sort themselves out. So with that background, you know, where do we go from you know, really easy, well-tolerated, mostly single-tablet regimens for treatment for both first-line and perhaps considering even switch therapies for people who want to be on a regimen that's more convenient? And dual therapy has really been the game changer potentially over the last year or so with the availability of new data. Uh, we looked at this 20 years ago with first-generation boosted protease inhibitors and older nucleosides, and it failed miserably. It took a long time for people to really come back to it. And I think the first example of true success with dual therapy for first-line treatment was the Gardell study, published now quite a few years ago, where they looked at lopinavir-ritonavir, recognizing boosted PIs have this high barrier to resistance, highly efficacious and generally well-tolerated, and looked at the possibility of using that with one nuke, 3TC, versus the traditional two nuke regimens. And this is the 48 and 96-week data showing very high rates of virologic suppression, clearly meeting criteria for non-inferiority. And it actually included a substantial number of people with viral loads of over 100,000. And even within that subgroup, they showed non-inferiority and similar virologic responses with two drugs versus three. And this actually got integrated into the guidelines, but as an alternative option for people who couldn't use a second nuke, like tenofovir or bacavir, or choose, chose not to. 
never got a lot of traction because it's lopinavir-ritonavir, and that obviously brings some issues of toxicity. So the obvious next question is, can we do the same with a currently recommended boosted PI like darunavir-ritonavir? And the Andes study tried to look at this, and it chose to adopt a two-phase approach where the first phase would be a relatively small study of about 150 people starting treatment for the first time, randomized to receive either darunavir-ritonavir with 3TC or with two nucleosides. And they indeed showed very high rates of virologic suppression. And the plan was for there to be a phase two where they would then bring in more patients to have a fully powered trial. And I'm not sure where we are with that data. So this is in the guidelines. It's suggested as, again, an option for people who don't want to use a second nuke like tenofovir or bacavir, but acknowledges the fact that the data that's available unlike Gardell with lopinavir-ritonavir, is still relatively small. Now, another fully-powered study looking at a two-drug regimen was looking at a nuke, true nuke-sparing regimen, and that was the NEAT study, again, published several years ago now, that looked at darunavir-ritonavir once a day with either twice-a-day raltegravir versus a traditional two-nuke regimen, 800 patients, treatment-naive, and they showed for the primary endpoint non-inferiority with regards to virologic suppression with the two options. And I think most people looked at that and they weren't very surprised. You would think a really good boosted PI and an integrase inhibitor would be highly efficacious. However, in subgroup analyses, for reasons that I still don't think are completely understood, it didn't appear to be as potent in the higher risk population, those with viral loads of over 100,000 and CD4s of less than 200. So again, this has been incorporated into the guidelines as an alternative option for people who don't want to use nukes for one reason or another, but with the important caveat that it probably shouldn't be used as first-line therapy in those who have high viral loads or low CD4 cells. And then came the Gemini study. Well, people said boosted PIs have limitations. Primary first-line therapy has sort of moved away from them as a preferred option because of issues like tolerability. Um, but recognizing the high barrier to resistance and have attempted to exploit that with two drug regimens. Well, dolutegravir comes along as a second generation integrase inhibitor and increasingly appears to have some properties similar to boosted PIs with regards to the high barrier to resistance. And again, I'm not going to go through this in detail with all of you, but as you know, at this point, dolutegravir has really been stressed and it's been looked at there's got to be at least seven registrational trials where one of the arms is two nukes and dolutegravir, and not a single case of any resistance, nuke or integrase resistance, that has emerged in any of those trials. Uh, in addition, we have the data that Joe talked about in Donning, where we're looking at treatment experience patients where dolutegravir is used with one fully active nuke with high levels of efficacy. There's even dolutegravir monotherapy studies which we're not recommending because there was failure and resistance, but the majority of people actually did suppress. So the barrier to resistance is high enough that it led people to think, maybe we could look at this as an alternative as part of a two-drug regimen. And one of those looks was dolutegravir 3TC, but it was done extremely cautiously in a study called PADDLE, where they took a very select group of patients who had viral loads of less than 100,000, CD4s of over 200, and they started out by simply treating 10 of them with dolutegravir 3TC in a single arm open label study to see if this would work. And it did appear to be promising. So they expanded the group to 20 people 
And that's now been reported and it shows that the overwhelming majority of those people maintain virologic suppression for up to two years. And then the ACTG did a study where they said, well, we're gonna expand the numbers and look at 125 or so treatment naive patients. And we'll include about 25% of those people with viral loads between 100,000 and 500,000 to try to stress the regimen a little bit more. And that too demonstrated very high rates of virologic suppression, including in the people with the higher viral loads. There was one observation that people focused a lot of attention on and that was there was a single person who did indeed select for resistance, both the nukes and integrase. And while normally you'd say, well, one person with integrase mutation out of 125, who cares? But it's against the background of probably thousands of people treated in randomized control trials with dolutegravir in two nukes without a single episode of resistance. So it needed larger registrational trials, and that's what Gemini 1 and 2 were. So they enrolled people who were treatment naive. They allowed them to have a viral load of up to 500,000 based on some of the phase 2 data from the ACTG trial. Uh, and it was a standard non-inferiority trial. Couple things. Viral load had to be less than 500,000 at screening. They had to be hep B negative because it was only one hep B active drug with dolutegravir and 3TC. And they had to have a baseline genotype. So that's sort of the background for who was enrolled in the study. And here are the results. Very high rates of virologic suppression, comparing two drugs versus three. It clearly met the non-inferiority criteria. And then they did a lot of subgroup analyses and it held up very nicely. You can see all of the confidence intervals cross zero with one exception. And that's the less than 200 CD4 cells. And when they looked at who these people were, it turned out that there was really no strong message that this was true virologic failure. In fact, there were three individuals total, I believe, who had a viral load of greater than 50 that led to them being in the criteria of failure. Two of those three resuppressed without switching their antiretroviral regimen at all. But indeed, that at least is one group. And as you probably know, about six weeks ago, the FDA approved dolutegravir 3TC as a single tablet regimen for first-line once-daily therapy. So again, uh, two-drug regimen, first-line therapy, well-tolerated uh, in the group that were studied, as I characterized. But interestingly enough, the FDA chose to approve this drug regardless of baseline viral load. It's not completely clear to me why they did that. Usually they approved the drug for the study population that was, you know, led to the registrational trials or the registrational trials that led to approval. But in this case, they decided that they were going to accept anybody regardless of viral load. It'll be interesting to see what the guidelines panels do. The current guidelines do document that there's data with this regimen for select patients, but acknowledge that it's in people with viral loads of less than 500,000. We'll see the next time the guidelines look at this once it's published and things like that. So which dual therapy regimen has been shown to be effective for first-line therapy that's on this list? Dolutegravir plus rilpiparine, adazanavir, ritonavir plus 3TC, dolutegravir 3TC, cabotegravir long-acting plus rilpiparine long-acting, which we haven't talked about yet, or none of the above. Go ahead and vote. This isn't clear. I guess it's the next biopic, right? <laughs>
Right, so it's almost 80%, all you take over in 3TC. And this is really important because we're gonna now talk a little bit about combination regimens for maintenance therapy, but for first-line therapy, this is the one that has been carefully studied and is now FDA approved for first-line treatment with a two-drug regimen. Let me see, how do I move forward? Okay, so now let's talk about virologic suppressed patients. So we've got this body of literature uh, for first-line treatment. What about those people who are on a stable regimen who are looking to change to something a little bit simpler? So we have a variety of studies, and rather than go into the details on them, because most of these have been presented and published some time ago, lots of data that, again, tried to look at the role of boosted PIs with 3TC if you want to avoid tenofovir and abacavir. So we've got several pretty large randomized control trials with atazanavir 3TC, or boosted atazanavir, boosted darunavir, boosted lopinavir, ritonavir. So we've had this data for quite a while. If you've got somebody who's stably suppressed, who doesn't have underlying resistance, and that's what's true in all of these studies, is you can't have underlying 3TC resistance, and you want to get them off in a bacavir and tenofovir type regimen, you can put them on any one of the preferred boosted PIs with 3TC. What about the dolutegravir option? Well, this was actually looked at a little while ago and has now um, been reported and is incorporated into the guidelines and FDA approved, and that's dolutegravir and rilpivirine. So this is, again, a nuke-sparing regimen. It was only studied in people who are virologically suppressed, so no data in treatment-naive patients. And they identified a relatively pristine population of people who were stably suppressed on antiretrovirals without any significant underlying resistance and randomly assigned them to go on dolutegravir 3TC or continue their regimen. And you can see 95% in both groups maintained viral suppression, virologic failure was rare, and there's now data out to 100 weeks in this study population, generally well tolerated. It's obviously, it's a single tablet now. It's an extremely small pill. The total mass of these two drugs together is 75 milligrams, but it is real pivoting. So you do need to be aware of things like acid reducing agents and taking it with a big meal. Now, what about dolutegravir 3TC? Well, it's interesting. If you think about it, you can probably not remember any situation where a regimen that worked in treatment-naive patients wouldn't maintain viral suppression in a group that didn't have underlying resistance. And I think this is gonna be an interesting area to look at as it evolves, but I think we probably already know the answer. If Gemini 1 and 2 showed that it worked, and I didn't mention, but it's important, Gemini one and two had no underlying, no resistance, just like the other dolutegravir 2 nuke studies. If that worked, why would it not work in a switch study? But we're waiting for the data. So we have the small study of about 90 people from Aspire, where they were switched, stably suppressed people, to dolutegravir 3 TC or continued a three-drug regimen, and it showed very high rates of virologic suppression up to 48 weeks with very rare virologic failure. This is the extent of the data we have for switching to this regimen. Um, but there is a fully powered phase three trial called Tango, which will likely get presented, I, my guess is before CROI 2020, uh, and we'll see these results, which I think we all know what the results will be, but it'll be nice to have it as we start to think about this as a possibility for a switch in people who are otherwise suppressed without underlying resistance to the drugs in the regimen. 
So this is the most recent U.S. guidelines, DHHS and ISUSA, talking about two drug regimens. They talk about dolutegravir 3TC in people with viral loads of less than 500,000. Again, this was before the drug was FDA approved for all viral loads. Talks about boosted PIs and raltegravir in a select group, boosted PIs in 3TC, and ISUSA, very similar sort of summary of the potential options that are available. So where are we with new drugs and combinations and development? Well, let me start with the probably the next drug that's likely to get FDA approved, or, or perhaps maybe a, a close race with a few others, but uh, is Fostemsevir. This is a prodrug of Temsevir. This is a small molecule oral drug given twice a day that binds GP120 and inhibits HIV. New drug and a new class, which brings the opportunity of a, a potential drug for people who have problems with either resistance or tolerance. And it's really being focused on those who have multi-drug resistant virus. And what the FDA has requested of these new drugs and new classes for this rare population of patients is that you simply demonstrate intrinsic potency of the drug. And that's traditionally being done by giving it to people who are on a stable failing regimen to demonstrate that it works then put everybody on an optimized background regimen with longer follow-up to assess safety. And that's what the BRIGHT study did. It took a group of people who had multi-drug resistant virus, and if they had some options still available, they randomized those people to twice a day Fostemsevir versus placebo with their failing regimen, documented viral suppression at eight days, and showed that for the primary endpoint, there was significantly better viral suppression in those who received the new drug versus those who received placebo. And then they received open-label therapy, where they got optimized background with Fostemsevir. Now, there was a group of people who simply had no active drugs left, and they just allowed those people to receive optimized background regimen with Fostemsevir. And these are the results. And you can see pretty high rates of virologic suppression, whether it's less than 40 or less than 200, in those who had some active options, 55, 70%. And even those who had no other active options to use with it, at 48 weeks, they had about 40% viral suppression. So this will be an important drug for people who need it. And then the much-anticipated long-acting studies, ATLAS and FLARE. This is comparing oral therapy to monthly injections, intragluteal uh, injections. So ATLAS and FLARE were very similar study designs. It's just the population studied started out a little different. So ATLAS started out with people who were virologically suppressed on a stable regimen, uh, who had no underlying resistance to the drugs in the study, and they were randomized to either remain on their current therapy or to get the, the cabotegravir and ropivirine. Now, there was a lead-in, the idea being that you don't want to give somebody drugs that are going to be around for months if they can't tolerate them. So they give them a lead-in with the oral regimen for a month, oral cabotegravir and ropivirine, if they tolerate it, then they put them on the long-acting monthly injections, and they followed them over time. These were the primary endpoints of proportion with virologic non-response, virologic success. Again, very few viral failures, very high rates of virologic success. It met the primary endpoint. Uh, it also met a secondary endpoint for the proportion undetectable. So it definitely demonstrated the activity that was anticipated based on the phase 2b LATTE 2 study. 
Um, they had very few people with virologic failure. They did have three with failure that they did genotypes on. They all had, two of them were Russian, one French, a lot of A subtype, and they all had this E138A or K, the NNRTI resistance, and two of the three had this L74I mutation, which is traditionally considered a polymorphism that occurs more frequently in people with subtype A, but it was a finding in this particular study. One of the concerns was gonna to be tolerability and acceptability. This is the injection site reaction, which was the most common side effect. You can see it was pretty common early on, but incident uh, injection site reactions were relatively low. And when it was all said and done, only four individuals stopped therapy. And when they surveyed, surveyed these people, stopped because of injection site reactions. And when they surveyed these people about their interest in staying on the study, the overwhelming majority of people who were on the injections wanted to stay on their regimen. Interestingly, the people on the oral regimen were much less enthusiastic about staying on oral therapy. And again, it defines probably the most important question as we think about these drugs being approved in that, who are they gonna be right for? Well, I think they're gonna be right for the people who want them. Because the people who came into this study wanted to be on a long acting regimen, they wanted to be on it. And once they got it, the good news is they still wanted to be on it. Um, the people who came in and got oral therapy were like, what am I doing in a study? I could be doing this on my own. Flare was exactly the same study, except it was treatment-naive patients. Everybody got dolutegravir with a vacuumer 3TC, or if they couldn't get that, they took two other nukes. Those who got suppressed, which was the overwhelming majority, were then randomized, again, once suppressed, to either stay on their dolutegravir with two nukes, or get the four-week lead-in of cabotegravir-olpivirine orally, and then the long-acting regimen. So very similar study design. It just shows you that you don't need to be suppressed for a long time to be able to maintain that suppression. This was just 20 weeks of suppression. In ATLAS, it could have been years for many of them. Again, the outcomes were virtually identical to what we saw in the other study. High rates of virologic suppression, very few viral failures, but again, this interesting observation, they were able to do genotypes and three virologic failures. In this case, they were all from Russia. They all had subtype A, and three of them had this L74I mutation with some additional integrase mutation. So it does appear that there may be something unique for people who have this L74I polymorphism, and it may be a stepping stone to more resistance in a subset of people. This may be particularly relevant to people with subtype A virus. All of that needs to be sorted out and I'm sure is being very aggressively looked at now that this data has been reported. From an injection site reaction, again, the data looks very similar to what we saw in the other trial. Only two individuals stopped because of injection site reactions and when they asked them and surveyed them about interest in staying, again, those who were on the long acting really wanted to stay on it. So what's next with long-acting therapy? Well, it was submitted to the FDA just about a month or so ago. So it is under review. Based on these two registrational trials, it's hard to imagine that this won't ultimately be approved. The next big step, and Joe already talked about that, is there's gonna be a 2M study that is fully enrolled and likely to be reported in the near future. Uh, and that is comparing once a month versus every other month. So again, for the right, individuals, there's an opportunity right now for them to only have to think about their HIV 12 times a year. 
and it's very possible that when the 2M study comes out, if it works, that people may only have to think about their HIV therapy six days a year total, which would be really an extraordinary advance above and beyond even a single small pill once a day. The other thing is trying to stress this strategy in a population that we would all believe it might be very helpful for. And those are non-adherent individuals. That's not who was included in Atlas and Flare. The ACTG has just recently opened ACTG 5359. I really encourage you to think about this for the patients you're following in your clinic. These are for the people that you simply can't get suppressed and are poorly adherent. Viral loads of over 200 will be sort of the first thing to look at. If they have that, then they may be a candidate for this study. And what we do in this study is we give them standard of care, three drug regimens or more, and we incentivize them. In addition to being in a study and having a lot of research staff support to get them done detectable, there's all sorts of financial reimbursements to try to get them there. And then once they're there, they get randomized to stay on that regimen or to go to the long-acting regimen with the opportunity to then switch later on to long-acting therapy. So this is really one of the few studies that we've done through the ACTG where I actually think we could profoundly impact people's lives because these are the people we can't get to undetectable, right? Because if we could, they would already be there. So it's really, I think, a great opportunity. And again, I encourage everybody to consider looking at the patients in your clinic that might be candidates for this study. What's on the more distant horizon? Well, there's PRO140. This is a, a monoclonal antibody that binds CCR5. So it has inhibitory activity against viruses that only use CCR5 or R5 only viruses. It's being looked at in a variety of ways. One of the more interesting ways is looking at it as maintenance therapy. And there was a phase 2B study published about a year or two ago where they took people suppressed they started them on, on month, uh, weekly infusions and they stopped their therapy to see whether they could maintain suppression on just this single agent. This was a follow-up study that was presented at Croy, looking at various different doses, showing uh, again in the highest dose, the 700 milligrams, and the intermediate dose, 525. There are some people who are experiencing failure, 15 to 30%. Um, Again, it's ongoing study. There are lots of people who are still in study. We'll see more data. It was about 50% in the original phase 2B study. So this is an area, this is a drug that's being looked at. It's a long-acting agent, but it's only going to be for those people who have R5-only viruses. There's the nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. We've been hearing about 8591 for quite a while. It has potent activity against nukes presented at Croy. You can see these are the IC50s, the inhibitory concentrations for this new drug against viruses. You probably can't see these genotypes down at the bottom, but you'll trust me, 184, L74V, multiple TAMs, K65R, and you can see resistance to a lot of the other nukes, but maintain susceptibility. So this could be an option for people who have underlying nuke resistance. It also has a very long half-life, so it could be potentially used as part of a long-acting regimen. Uh, and it's currently in active development for dual therapy for maintenance, along with Duravarine. So more will be coming with this drug, I'm sure, and we'll be hearing more at, at future meetings. 
Then there's another new drug in a new class called a capsid inhibitor. It's taken over a decade to develop a drug in this class. Uh, this is GS6207. What was presented at CROI was phase one single dose pharmacokinetics. This drug works at several different steps in the viral life cycle. And the pharmacokinetics after a subcutaneous injection are quite favorable. And this is what was presented looking at doses between 30 and 450 milligrams. And you can see a subcutaneous injection of 100 milligrams or more resulted in mean plasma levels that were above the protein-adjusted EC95 for up to 12 weeks. So 100 to 450 milligrams sub-Q. So this is, again, new data. There's now pilot studies going on looking at the antiviral activity. We know what it does in vitro, looking at it in vivo. And I think the great promise of this, in addition to being a new drug in a new class for people who have a lot of resistance, it's maybe the next generation of potential long-acting therapies. In this case, one that could be administered subcutaneously with a very prolonged half-life. So again, I'm sure we'll be hearing in the next few months some of the early antiviral activity data in vivo. There's maturation inhibitors that have been developed for a long time. Most of them have come and gone before they ever got approved because of things like intrinsic resistance. This was data presented at CROI with another maturation inhibitor. In this case, it needed to be boosted by cobacistat. It was also it demonstrated antiviral activity, but my understanding is that this is not moving forward, but there's probably a next generation maturation inhibitor will be looked at, new drugs, new classes, obviously will have uh, be options for select people if they need it. And then finally, let me talk about broadly neutralizing antibodies. Um, we talked a little bit about PRO140, a broadly neutralizing antibody that binds to CCR5 for R5 only viruses. We have ibilizumab. I didn't talk about that because it's not a new new drug on the horizon, it's approved for people who have multi-drug resistant virus, and it's a monoclonal antibody that binds C CD4 and inhibits virus. And there's a lot of attention being given to broadly neutralizing antibodies that are HIV specific, that bind parts primarily of the viral envelope, CD4 binding site, V1, V2 loop, V3 loop. And these are being looked at in the context of prevention, uh, treatment, and cure strategies. Uh, one of the problems from a treatment perspective is not surprisingly, envelope is hypervariable. It's always evolving. It's susceptible to selection pressure. Most of the data shows that if you use a broadly neutralizing antibody, one antibody as uh, a treatment strategy that resistance is rapidly selected for. So people are looking at the possibility of using combination broadly neutralizing antibodies. Why? New drugs and new classes, long acting. Some of these monoclonal antibodies have been modified so that the half-life can be for months. Uh, and this was one study that was recently published where they looked at infusing every three weeks in people who are stably suppressed on antiretrovirals, giving them an infusion of two of these antibodies, one CD4 binding site, the other V3 loop, to see if that could maintain viral suppression during an analytical treatment interruption. And this is what they found. With no antibodies, that almost everybody rebounded with one antibody. People rebounded more slowly with two, it was further delayed. So again, this is something you'll be hearing more about as the field moves forward and using these options. So the last thing I have is a vote. 
uh, which drug maintains inhibitory levels for 12 weeks after subcutaneous injections? PRO-140, MK-891, the capsid inhibitor 6207, or the maturation inhibitor 232? Go ahead and vote. I make a big noise, pain in the street, gonna be a big man someday. You got mud on your face, you big disgrace. Kicking your can all over the place, singing we of you got it right. Yeah, the capsid inhibitor is the one that showed at those three doses, 100 milligrams or more, maintaining levels above the EC95 for up to 12 weeks. And with that, I will stop, block the laser from hitting my eye, and try to answer any questions you might have. Great, thanks. Thanks, sir. Great. Lots of questions. I'll start with one of mine. Just uh, I was intrigued. I, so we heard uh, Joe mentioned the, the weight gain with uh, integrase inhibitors. Uh, what kind of weight gain is that? Um, I know it's not something you talked yeah. about, but is it is it like Crick's belly or is it more like yeah. this weight gain? So it, most of you know, almost all of the data looking at weight gain is looking at cohorts. So it's looking at simply the weight gain. We don't have you know, visceral adiposity, subcutaneous fat. I think there's very little data looking at that. So mostly we're looking at weight. And what are we looking at? We're looking at two to three or four kilograms. So it's not a huge amount, probably significant. Uh, and again, it remains to be seen whether this is a real observation or not. The data is still mixed. It is incredibly difficult to adjust for all confounders. Um, and then there'll probably be some discussion. I forget if somebody's going to present it, but Rafi Landovitz has a paper in press that he presented at Croy looking at cabotegravir in HIV negative people to see if this is a biologic property of integrase inhibitors. And if it applies to cabotegravir, a lot of ifs, you'd think you would be able to demonstrate weight gain in those who received it versus those who didn't. And his study showed that there was none. So I think a lot more to come as far as integrates. Great. Joe? In, in the ACTG 5257, I think there was a CT scan study. And um, uh, at least with Brotegavir, I think it was both subcutaneous fat. It was kind of a general distribution of fat, mm. not the specific kind of Crick's belly kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, lots of good questions. Uh, really quickly, why was there a Gemini 1 and 2? Why not just the Gemini big one? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the I think the regulatory bodies like two fully powered trials for new drugs. So a lot of the companies are sort of accelerating the process and just doing them both at the same time. And we've seen this repeatedly, right? We saw it with the Duet studies and the Gemini studies and the Sword studies, and it's a lot of this. Um, any uh, uh, thing to say on two drug combinations, uh, boosted PI plus non nukes? Yeah, so that's a, it's a great question. You know, the, obviously the first thing that comes to mind was uh, one of the first trials that actually showed good virologic efficacy with two drugs long before anything that I talked about. And that was the ACTG study that had three arms, one of which was lopinavir, ritonavir, and efavirenz. And it worked really well. The problem was it wasn't very well tolerated. Uh, and since then, I'm trying to think of any other studies. There hasn't been really looked at. There's every reason to believe it should work. Just hasn't been looked at. Okay, great. Um, uh, comment on uh, dilutegravir, ropivirine uh, in treatment naive patients. Yeah. 
No, it's a great question. And, you know, I have to say when they started the sword studies, everyone that would listen to me at those companies, I said, you should really do this in naives. Um, because I, I do think it would have more traction. I think getting people to switch is a bigger leap than getting them to start. Never looked at it. As far as I know, they have no plans to look at it. And consequently, if you did treat somebody in that way, who's treatment naive or starting therapy, you would do it without any real data. And I'd be probably reluctant to do it because we've been surprised many times. Things that seem like they should work don't always work as well as we expect. So I'd be reluctant to use it in that way. And if I really wanted it, I might get people suppressed first and then think about switching. But you might talk to the company again and get them to yeah. think about this better. Um, uh, we, we had a couple questions about people who have a real hard time taking, uh, taking pills. Uh, and there are people that, that really can't. Have you looked at or has injectables been looked at in that kind of indication? Yeah, no, it's not, not as far as I know, but you can imagine that when we think about the population for these, the people who want it, those are exactly the kinds of people that would want it. And I think it's a great opportunity for those people. And, and pill taking is hard for lots of reasons, including psychological reasons. And I think this is going to be a great addition for those kinds of people. Um, so question about, uh, boosted darunavir and raltegravir, uh, what, a, what, a, you know, there are some concerns about the very high viral load patients. What about the patient who is now suppressed? Um, is, would that yeah, so fail? We, yeah. So we do have some of that kind of data and it certainly looks like it'll work. There's no reason to believe it wouldn't work. Maintaining viral suppression requires a lot less than getting people undetectable. So if it worked in treatment naive people with viral loads of less than 100,000, it will almost certainly work as a switch strategy. So a question uh, uh, about cost effectiveness again. Uh, in this case, uh, what's your thought about the cost effectiveness of oral versus injectable uh, therapy? Anything that we might guess? Yeah. No, it, you know, and cost is really, I think we're increasingly yeah, going to yeah. be looking at it now. So I, we in these courses kind of look at the questions coming in, and I, and I think we're getting more questions about cost. I think it's an interesting yeah, because I think until very recently, everything that came in at a lower cost was an uh, inferior regimen. I think we're moving towards options that are actually extremely viable uh, that are coming in at a lower cost. You know, dolutegravir 3TC is, uh, I think it's something like 25, 30% cheaper. They actually came in at a lower cost for that regimen than a standard three drug regimen. So we have to start considering that. What they do with the pricing for the long acting therapy will be very interesting. We obviously won't find out until it's approved, um, but you know we will see. All right, maybe some of the people in the room that are wearing the red uh, things can influence your companies. Not saying anything. Um, comment on uh, renal restrictions in ACTG uh, 5359. Um, so 5359 is the um, long-acting um, capotegravir rilpivirine in non-adherent patients. I don't know if there are renal restrictions, are there? For dolutegravir rilpivirine in 5359. There shouldn't be, are there? Now they're pivirine. Yeah. Or, yeah, so I don't, right. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I would 
bizarre. But you would still see a little bump in creatinine because of the integrase. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So um, you mentioned the Russian breakthroughs, um, and you mentioned that that was a type A virus. And remind us the different types of virus. Yeah. Could that be an explanation that might make us more relaxed to when we treat our viruses here. Yeah, so, right, so we have, you know, HIV-1, HIV-2, and we have these different groups of HIV, HIV group M being the most common, uh, and then within that, there's all these subtypes, you know, A, B, C, D, and a lot of uh, circulating recombinant forms. Uh, and there are some differences in the polymorphisms that you see amongst these subtypes, and subtype A is seen in Eastern Europe, and that's why they saw it amongst some of these Russians. We have very few subtype A's here. Most are subtype B's, but we have an increasing number of immigrants. When you do a genotype, it tells you the subtype. And again, we need a lot more data and analysis from this study population about the underlying subtypes. What's the denominator for subtype A's? What percentage of those failed? I haven't seen any of that data yet, but one could envision that what will come out of this, based on this early signal, is that we will find that those who have subtype A may be at somewhat higher risk for failure, and, and that might have implications as to who we recommend this therapy for. We don't have a lot of it here, so it may not be as relevant, but we certainly do have people with subtype A in the United States. So I, I think right now there's not much to do with it until the drug is approved yep. and until we have more data. So here's an interesting question. Uh, patients on these long-acting uh, regimens concern if they were to stop therapy about the tail of these long-acting and inducing resistance? Yeah, what a, what a great question. It's, you know, it's really easy to look at these studies and get excited with the results. And I think we should be excited. It's an amazing opportunity for our patient. The challenges that are going to come with this option are overwhelming. And we have not even begun to scratch the surface of how we're going to manage people who aren't able to come in for a dose, the people who don't show up for a dose, because there is going to be a tail. The cabotegravir pharmacokinetics suggests a much longer half-life than ropiferine. So people could be on functional monotherapy for months if they just drop out of care. So we're gonna to need to manage how they're gonna come in and get their treatment, if it's gonna be in the clinic. We're gonna to need to manage how we're gonna do outreach for those who miss their follow-up appointments. We're gonna to have to manage how to get oral therapy to bridge people who go out of town or something like that and can't come in and get their injectables. And in case all of that isn't enough, we're gonna to need to manage what are we gonna do for women of childbearing potential that become pregnant especially if we're gonna be worried about the role of integrase inhibitors and teratogenicity. There is gonna be a lot to think about between now and the approval of these drugs. And I guess, you know, just another example, uh, the, these, some of these people might be at higher risk for incarceration if they've been not here, I'm just, just speculating, but then to make sure that the correctional setting would provide these drugs too. Even or transition to oral. Yeah, yeah. maybe so. Um, so, um, comment about um, dolutegravir plus 3TC versus dolutegravir monotherapy. And I, I hope I know what you're going to say, but. Yeah. So the dolutegravir monotherapy studies were all very, very small and all of them failed. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so nobody is recommending dolutegravir monotherapy. Um, it's just, you know, I always fail means it didn't do anywhere close to as well as it should have, and people failed with resistance. Um, but there were a lot of people who were suppressed, but it's not an option. Dolutegra 3TC is a different world. 
again, assuming susceptibility with 1,400 patients treated, no failures, no or no failures with resistance. I mean, there's no different. There's no questions. Different. So I got an, a, an answer to a question in the form of a question card. Um, the question about the renal uh, inclusion criteria, the creatinine clearance has to be 50 or greater um, in that study. So thanks, Donna. Um, capsid inhibitor. But think about it as a possible PEP agent. Yeah. Yeah, no, PEP, PREP, yeah. you know, obviously it's still really early. We haven't even seen data showing it has in vivo antiviral activity, but we will, and it probably does based on the in vitro data. Um, but yeah, all of those things are going to be options and things to consider. So I'm not sure who's asking this question, but what about waking on Bictegravir? <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like, what about weight gain? What about neural tube defects? We just, it's a new drug and yeah, the yeah. amount of data is so limited right now. We don't know. Um, archived resistance predict breakthrough. Um, should we worry about the archived resistance? Yeah. So, you know, this could be a good topic for discussion during the panel and some of my colleagues may want to weigh in. I am not an archive resistance um, aficionado, but I just don't find that in most cases it's terribly helpful. And what I have seen when people refer these cases to me, I, I think it's often misleading. Doesn't mean it doesn't have a role. It's been incorporated into the guidelines as something one might consider in very select cases. Um, but I would limit it to those with very select cases. Uh, because it can be confusing. There are issues for sure about sensitivity, meaning somebody could have resistance you miss, but there are also people who, I, I've, I've had these people sent to me who are virologically suppressed on, on a tripla, uh, and they do an archive test and they have K103N and 184V. And it's like, what do you do with that? Yeah, so. Yeah. I think you should stay around for the panel and maybe yeah. we'll toss it. So there actually are a couple questions that I have. We don't have time to get to, but I'm going to give them to the panels uh, because I think that they're, they're good questions and hopefully we can get to them as well. So I think it's time for a break and thanks, Eric. Great. Thank